Thank you, Tom. I'd ask that you would take God's Word in your hand this morning and turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We find ourselves continuing in our series out of Romans 1, and we get to uh, verses 24 and 25 this morning. We've been talking about the good, the bad, and ugly of Romans 1, and we are getting to uh, what I would like to call the ugly part of Romans 1, when we find about that man has suppressed the truth of God, and man has substituted the truth of God, and as a result of that, the wrath of God is being revealed, Paul tells the people in Rome. So I would ask that as we read our scripture this morning that you would stand for the reading of God's Word. And I'm going to start in verse 18 and then go through through our text in verse 25. This is what Paul says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, that is, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, and birds, and animals, and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we come before You this morning. And Lord, we deal with a delicate passage as a church this morning. Lord, we don't want to shy away from this, for this is in Your living and active Word. And we know that these are difficult times that we live in 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 regards to the subject of sex and the subject of sexual immorality. And Father, I pray that that You would give us a mind like You when it comes to this subject. That we would have a right thinking when it comes to uh, this type of message. And Father, for those that are broken, for those that find themselves in the heat of the battle, Father, I pray that there would be words of grace and words of forgiveness but Lord, also words of warning that this is serious business, the holiness of your people. And Father, I pray that you would find a people here in this place that desire nothing more than to be holy. So Father, I pray that your words would be my words this morning and that you would be glorified in all that we say and do. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. An eight-year-old girl went to her father one day who was working out in the yard. And she asked her dad, Dad, what is sex? The father was surprised that she would ask such a question, but decided if she was old enough to ask the question, then she'd be old enough to get the straight answer. So he proceeded to tell her all about the birds and the bees. 
When he had finished explaining, the little girl looked at him horrified with her mouth wide open. The father didn't know what to say. He said, well, honey, why would you ask this question? The little girl replied, because mom told me that you needed to know that dinner would be ready in a couple secs. Some of you are still processing that. You know, it's difficult to preach a message like this. I'll talk about it in a couple moments. But any pastor would be reluctant to talk about this very uh, subject to address the issue of sex because one of the main concerns a, a preacher has is the closing hymn after a message like this has been shared. One pastor preached on the subject and began to notice that midway through the sermon, the congregation began to snicker. He got nervous. Did he say something wrong? Did he, did he slip up and say something he shouldn't have? Why were they snickering? Well, he looked down to the pulpit and saw the order of worship that the director of the worship that day had put the closing song, the old invitational hymn, Oh, Why Not Tonight? I can assure you that's not our closing song today. If you haven't figured it out today, we are speaking on, in regards to Paul's assessment of humanity. And I know that this is a, uh, a careful and, and needed sermon in our day. I know there are some uh, who say, why, why this kind of message? This kind of message needs to be preached because God says it needs to be preached. Because it's in the living and active Word of God. Some say, well, why during Christmas? Why would we during the holiday, when we should be thinking about festive things and the coming of Jesus, I will tell you, in our society today, there is no greater time than today to deal with the issue of sexual immorality here in America. And we don't want to make uh, our traditions supersede where God has led us today to the text that He's led us to. So we want to deal with this because this is an important subject Paul understood it to be an important subject because when he was writing the book of Romans, he was living in a town called Corinth. Corinth was the Las Vegas, if you will, of the Middle East during his day. Sex was rampant, prostitution, and all types of uh, uh, incredibly heinous behavior were going on in the city of Corinth. Well, just like in Corinth of Paul's day, we too live in a world that is saturated with this theme. The world we live in is infatuated. Even though we say we live in a Christian culture, many parts of the world are amazed that we have fallen for the sexual immorality that we have here in America. In fact, within the lines of business, the motto that seems so key uh, to business is that sex sells, and we see it in every facet of our lives. In fact, Herbal Essence Shampoo once shared an advertisement to their customers that washing uh, and shampooing with their product would be, bring forth a sexual experience. Carl's Jr. fast food burger joint advertised on television in California that its new flat bun burger was the rave. How did they do it? By having a high school teacher strip in front of a class of high schoolers where two boys say it's always funner when you have the right buns. You sit there and say, my goodness, how could we be at a place like that? Clearasil commercial uh, brought out a commercial that, I'm sorry, Clearasil uh, acne cream had a commercial that was entitled May Cause Confidence. 
But what it's really causing is controversy. A teen featured in the Clear Soul commercial gains so much confidence that it shows on the advertisement him hitting on his mother, uh, his friend's mother. In another Clear Soul ad, the same teenager finds himself sitting on the couch between a girlfriend and her mother. The mother is showing uh, the boy naked baby pictures of the girl. At the end of the commercial, the girl says seductively, you should see me now. Folks, this is on our TVs. This isn't just on cable. These are ads that we have, but it's not just confined, uh, find it confined to television. In fact, one of the most famous movie actors... In all of Hollywood, Halle Berry made a reported $500,000 for 12 seconds of a movie. Now you say, why would you make $500,000 in 12 seconds of acting? The answer was is that she was willing to go topless. Now producers said that that was small change because what that would mean would be more than $50 million at the box office. Folks, we live in a world that is saturated with this issue. We find it on the radio with the likes of Howard Stern. We find it in music and music videos that find raunchy uh, uh, simulated sex acts that take place. But more than ever, in more clearer ways have we seen this seductive culture in our lives than on our computers. I want to share a couple frightening stats with you. I was, I was blown away by this in regards to the internet. With the help of the Internet, in fact, an award was given by the Adult Video Network to the Internet because they believe that they, uh, the Internet has been its greatest sale, sales tool. In fact, the uh, adult industry has raised its annual income almost $4 billion in the last five years to go up to $15 billion. Why? Because 310 million pages on the Internet are pornographic. That means, if you want to understand what that means, all the content on the Internet, 18% of everything on the Internet involves hardcore pornography. In 1999, one in four children under the age of 18 had been exposed to Internet pornography. It wasn't that bad because in the year 2003, they say almost 80% of all minors had been exposed to it on the Internet. 80%. In fact, 19% of all Internet pornography users are under the age of 15 years of age. A study done by the Girl Scouts of America learned that 30% of the, their girls had been sexually harassed in chat rooms on the Internet. 30%. If you think that this is just a male problem, that this is only a problem you have to deal with if it's your boys, let me share something that Focus on the Family learned of Christian children. Uh, in fact, girls ages 15 to 25 rival, they say, their male counterparts in the area of struggle with pornography. This week alone, more than 70 million different people will search for porn on the Internet in the next seven days. 70 million. Now you say, well, Tim, that's a world problem. We don't have to deal with that in the church my kids aren't a part of it. My husband, my wife, she isn't a part of it. He isn't a part of it. Sadly, in our world today, my friends, we live in a world where this sin deals with us as Christians just as much as it deals with the world. Who will ever forget the Roman Catholic Church that has paid out hundreds of millions of dollars for its sexual abuse scandal that has taken place? 
You say, well, that's a Catholic problem. Do you know how many people from uh, pastors from small churches all the way up to some of our biggest mega churches in the United States find themselves having to leave the ministry because of sexual sin? There is no doubt in a group as big as this that there are some here today you wouldn't even have to look very far they look all cleaned up they look just like we do and we may be the ones that I'm talking about that we're sitting there all cleaned up and yet we are dying right now under the struggle of sexual sin this is something we have to talk about because it is involved in our lives in a group this big there are some that are struggling with sex sexual immorality in your thought life others because of your eyes for others it's the type of entertainment that you watch for some here it's going too far in your dating life for others it's not waiting for marriage for some it is breaking the commitments that you made on your wedding day and others it's all-out adultery folks this is a sin that is crippled our Christian witness. How can we move and tell people about the power of God if we fall to this kind of issue? We've got to get this issue right. It's time that we get this right. So what do we do? We go to God's Word. And that's what I want to do this morning. I want to focus in on what Paul shares about this issue. Because there is a way that God gives that we can glorify God even in the arena of sexual uh, involvement. So I want to speak about one who has taught us, Jesus Christ, even in the midst of temptation, how to live lives of purity. But I want to make a disclaimer very quickly in this message. I want to make it abundantly clear that as I speak with you, I do not speak to you as one who has found perfection in this area. Now there's a lot of people who would say, Tim, just stop right there. Preachers shouldn't talk that way. But if I want the church that I'm a part of to find victory, then I need to make it clear that nobody's perfect in this way. I've spent a lot of time being beat up by the devil because of issues in my past and even present issues of dealing with this kind of garbage in my own life. Even spent time talking with a couple of my mentors and even going to my wife and saying, Amanda, am I above reproach in this way? Have you ever seen me do something that I have not either confessed sin about or dealt with in a very quick way? I don't want to come across in preaching this as if I'm holier than thou. I am not. I am a brother just like you who has to continually put the issue of sexual immorality under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And that's where we all need to be. Because we're all going to struggle with it at varying levels. Some of you may not have the issue as much as others, but we all need to place this under the authority of Christ. There are three things I want to observe this morning. Time is not my friend. So let's look at what we have this morning. First thing we must understand, if we want a proper view of sexuality, what I'd like to call a sanctified sexuality, there are three things we must observe. Number one, we must recognize the different stances that people take when it comes to sex. There are different approaches. There are different viewpoints or different stances that people have when it comes to this issue. The first one we see is Playboy's stance. Is Playboy's stance. Now we need to understand something. We all know what Playboy is, so I'm not going to get into more of that. But we need to understand that the founder, Hugh Hefner, had an idea, had a vision when he put his magazine together. The vision was this, that he wanted all-out hedonism, he says, with high society. 
What he wanted was he did not want sexual immorality to be a back alley addiction. He wanted it to be something that was praised and that was worshipped, that it was so glamorous that if you weren't a part of it, then you were missing out. In fact, when he uh, had a television show, you think that things are bad now. Hugh Hefner had a television show at one point, and it was called The Penthouse. And where it was is he would walk around with a, a smoker's jacket and a pipe and with a, a bottle of brandy and a cup of brandy in his hand, and he would show all the brilliance of being a part of the life of sin that he was a part of. Now, what is involved in this stance? The idea that Hugh Hefner wants you to understand And this is what he has said, is he wants us to know that as human beings, we all we are are evolved animals. That's his view of humanity. That's his anthropology. That human beings are just evolved animals. And our job is to take care of self. But he'll give a caveat. What he'll say is that our pursuit for sexual pleasures should end when it starts to hurt somebody else. I want to put a line in the sand right now. Sexual immorality of any kind hurts one, even if it's by yourself. It's called hurting God. It's called being an affront to a holy God. But he says, as long as you don't hurt anybody, do whatever you want. Whatever you want to be a part of, there's no definition to what you can do. But the other thing that we see as we study his approach is that he wants us to understand that uh, sexual involvement and out-of-control sexual desires have no consequences. There are no consequences. It's glamorous. Why? Because you can do it and it's no problem. It's just a lot of fun. And that's what our world has been sucked into. The world has been sucked into thinking that Hugh Hefner got it right. That he's been able to figure out that it's alright to live that way and that there are no consequences to sin and that it's a bunch of fun and games. Well, I'll tell you, he's, he's dead wrong. There's a second stance we see this morning. A second stance involves the prude's stance. The prude's stance. Now, this is one that plagues the church. We sit there and say, well, I don't like Hugh Hefner's view of things. So what are we going to do? We're going to make sex as dirty as possible. And what I mean by that is we're going to say that sex is something that should be blushed at. In fact, there are some here today who are literally cringing, saying, Tim, you've said that word now uh, 38 times, and that's 38 times too many. There's children in the room. My wife is hearing this. My husband, what is my husband thinking right now? You're allowing thoughts to be in their mind. And we say, you know what? We shouldn't talk about these things. We shouldn't involve ourselves in these things. Well, we should. Because the world, including Christians today, are falling prey to a sin. We talk about lying. Why? Because the Bible says do not lie. We talk about not being greedy. Why? Because the Bible says do not be greedy. We talk about uh, not living lives of idolatry, worshiping other gods. Why? Because God says I don't want you to worship another god, only me. And yet when it comes to sex, we say, you know what, just leave that for their daily devotion, for those men's books that come out that say, don't look at the girl in your office or the one running down the street. But we say, don't talk about it on Sunday mornings. This view came from a great theologian almost, uh, let's see here, 1,700 years ago, a man by the name of Augustine, St. Augustine shared this. He believed that all sex was a sin. His view influenced and has influenced the church for thousands of years now. 
Augustine said that uh, there was no sex prior to the first sin in the Garden of Eden. And now that sin had entered into the garden and into our world, sex was an unavoidable accompan- I'm sorry, is unavoidably accompanied by sinful desires and passions. Now he says even more. He says all such desire is sinful, even the love in marriage that is shown through sex. He says that even parents should blush to think what they are doing together and how wrong God sees it. Augustine said sex is an unfortunate necessity to which the Christian should descend with regret. Is that your view of sexuality this morning? I would tell you I'm so thankful that I grew up in a family that my parents didn't view sex that way. Because I would come home and I would hear things and my father always had an open door when it came to questions. And he would say, what's wrong, son? And I would say, Dad, I heard this and I don't understand this. And he would deal with it honestly and openly. Because that's what God has told us to do. In fact, the Bible deals with this uh, in 166 of its contents. The book of the Song of Solomon was so racy and continues to be so racy, speaking about the love between a husband and a wife that Jewish boys back in the day were regarded as not having to look at that book because they were afraid it would begin to create arousal. This is one of the inspired books of the Bible. And God says, I am no prude. I've created sex. And it's, there's a proper place for it. There's one I want to add in between the second and third one. And that is, I was driving here, there's a prideful stance. There's a prideful stance. We find ourselves, whether we're in the playboy view of things or we're in the prudish view of things, there's another one that I thought of. And that is that there can be a prideful view. What we begin to say is, you know what? I'm above that. I don't deal with that type of issue. There are some sinners today who say, what a waste of a message. I don't deal with those types of things. I'm above that. And we need to be all that very careful to understand the temptation that comes with this kind of issue. Finally, we see a proper stance. A proper stance. If those ideas are wrong, where do we find the proper view? The answer is found in God's Word. If you want to have a healthy and vibrant understanding on this subject, then we need to understand what the Bible says. The Bible is not a list of do's and don'ts when it comes to sex, but it is a a, a book that talks about the importance of marriage and the gift to marriage and the gift of sex that God has given. The Bible devotes, as I've said, one whole book to it. And we should, as Christians, be one of the greatest proponents of sex in our society. Not any kind of sex but sex within the confines of marriage. Why? Because sex is good. Sex is good because God, the God who created it, is good. Let us never forget that. Don't tell when your kids come to you, and I speak again as a teenager remembering this, not as one who's dealing with it as a parent, but be very careful, parents, that when your child comes to you, first of all, you better make sure that if you get anything right on the approachability topic when it comes to your kids, that this is one of them. If your kids can't come to you on this issue, man, I pray for them because they're going to get it from everywhere else. 
And we learn from statistics that if the parents have a healthy picture of sexuality, that the kid, more likely than not, will have a healthy view of sexuality as well. The problem comes in when they deal with sexuality and the way their parent, or I'm sorry, way their friends tell them, the way the movies tell them, the way uh, magazines or books tell them to do it. They're going to learn about it somehow. The question is, are you going to allow them to be uh, to be approached by, or to have you uh, be approachable in that way? Are you approachable? The second thing is be very careful that you never say to your teenager or to one who is struggling with questions and these issues that you never say, you know what, you shouldn't have those feelings. Push those away. Understand God has created us as sexual beings. That's a very, it's a part of the very fabric of who we are. Now, it's, it's, it's about how God created us. In fact, Albert Moeller speaks about this when he talks to Christians about their stance when it comes to sex. He says Christians have no right to be embarrassed when it comes to talking about sex and sexuality. An unhealthy reticence or embarrassment is a form of disrespect to God's creation. Whatever, good may, whatever God made is good, and every good thing God made has an intended purpose that ultimately reveals His own glory. But when conservative Christians respond to sex with ambivalence or embarrassment, listen to what he says, we slander the very goodness of God. We slander the goodness. He goes on, he says, and we hide God's glory, which is intended to be revealed in human beings' right use of God's gifts. Sex is a gift from God, but it's to be used in the right way. Well, how are we to be aware of what's going on? We were on a cruise this last week, and we were sitting with a, a mother who had a statement, and maybe others have used it. Maybe she found it somewhere, or she made it up on her own. She said on the issue of sexuality that's bombarding her teenage kids, she says, I want them to be ignorant of nothing, but innocent of everything. What a great statement. Instead of sticking our heads in the sand, we need to be careful that we are not allowing our kids to be ignorant of things, especially what God's Word says about this subject, but call them to be innocent in all things. Well, how do we get there? How do we find victory in this? Well, we've got to realize a couple of things. First of all, we need to realize, second point this morning, what the Bible says about sexual immorality. This is a problem. Paul talks about it. Paul states that the decline into sexual morality is going to be a problem. It's a problem because of our sin. It's a problem that we're never going to be able to get rid of this side of glory. And he discusses the issues. And he tells us not about the good surrounding this issue, but the bad. Listen to what the words of our text again say in verse 24 and 25. Therefore God gave them over in sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Paul starts with a, a phrase or a word, the word therefore. Now again, we've got to ask that question. Why is it there? First of all, we need to understand that our decline into sexual sin or sexual immorality reflects God's settled position towards humanity's sin. It is God's settled position towards humanity's sin. 
Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity. What does that mean? How many have an idea of what that means? A phrase, who doesn't know what that means? All right, you bunch of liars. I'll deal with lying next week. I'm just kidding. That's not true. That is not true. (laughs) Paul says that in light of man's suppression of the truth and the continued substitution of the truth, there was something that was going to happen. What was going to happen? Verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness. But then he begins by saying something. He says, therefore God gave them over. This term gave over is the Greek word paradidomai. Paradidomai, what does that mean? It was a judicial term in Paul's day that spoke about a prisoner who was being uh, involved in being handed over. It was the transaction of handing a prisoner over to their sentence. What God is saying is, all right, you don't want to follow me? You don't want to do the things that I've called you to do. You don't want me to serve. Uh, you don't want to serve me as your God. You know what's going to happen. I'm going to hand you over. I'm going to hand you over to what? To your sentence. The wrath of God is being revealed. That's the sentence. The sentence is, is that God says, "All right, you want that? Fine, have it." Have you ever done that with your children? Your kid wants to do something that you know is only going to bring them harm, is only going to allow them to have um, a pain in their lives. And I don't mean uh, crazy things, but I remember my mom always used to say when we would try to uh, help cook and stuff like that, she says, you want to help cook? You want to keep doing it? I told you, no, this is going to hurt. And we'd say, no, no, we want to do it. And what would happen? We put our hands somewhere where it shouldn't be. And what happened? We were burned. Why? Because my mom knew that her word didn't hold rank anymore. It didn't didn't hold any stock. And the only way that we were going to learn was that we would experience her saying, you know what, go ahead, do what you want. So what do we say? We want to serve other gods other than God. And we create our own God. And we find ourselves trying to live life in the full. This handing over, this giving over first is a means of grace. Write that somewhere in your outline. It is a means of grace. This passage sounds a lot like the book of Genesis. Remember when Genesis chapter 6, Noah's on the earth, and the Bible says in Genesis 6 that every inclination of man was to do evil, and that all the world was involved in sin. And what does God say? He says, I will, my spirit will not contend with man, for he is mortal, and his days are 120 years, the amount of time it would take to build the ark. So what does God say? God says, I'm going to destroy the world. He's going to destroy the world. All but one family are destroyed. You know, in Romans chapter 1, we hear that we are a group of bad, bad people. And what could have God's response been? God's response could have been, you know what, I'll destroy you. You want to follow other gods? You want to pursue the sinful desires of your heart? Fine. Boom. And we find ourselves in eternity called hell. But there's grace to it. Why? 
Because if you were to ask anybody who has dealt with sin in their lives prior to coming to Jesus Christ, it was many times the very sin that they were falling to. And eating of that sin day in and day out that made them so sick to their stomach that they said, I can't live this way anymore. God, I I don't want to do this on my own anymore. So you've got to be involved in my life. The very nature of God giving us over to our sin is a way of Him saying, you know what? If I can't have you, uh, if I can, can uh, let me rephrase this. If, if you don't see the holiness of who I am by my divine decrees and my creation, then I'll let the devil have a heyday with you for a little while. And you enjoy the fruits of his buffet line. And at the end of that, you're going to say, I'm so sick of that. This thing only brings destruction in my life. So I want to follow you, Jesus. There's grace to it. But also understand there's also a bad side to it. Because what we learn is that we, at the very core of who we are, are people of sin. Think about this for a moment. It says that God gave us over. And where do we go? We don't go to Walmart or Kohl's. It says we go to sexual immorality. We run there. The best way to explain this idea of God giving us over and our appetite towards sin would literally be the best way to picture it is to have me here with a 100-pound German shepherd. And what I do with that German shepherd is I put a leash on that German shepherd. And then 10 feet in front of me and the German shepherd, I have someone put a T-bone steak on the floor. And I hold that German shepherd. Everything in that German shepherd is going to be going towards what? The steak. It's going to grab, it's going to dig, it's going to do everything it can, growl. It wants to get that steak. But what's holding it back? Me with the leash. But you know what a German shepherd's going to do after a while? It's going to find out that I can't get that steak, and it's not because of me, but it's because of the one holding me back. And you know what that German shepherd's going to do? It's going to take its mind off the meat for a second. It's going to turn around, and it's going to pursue me. It's going to say, let me go. I want that, and I will have that. And the dog's going to turn around, and it's going to deal with me, the one who is holding back the leash. So what happens? What do we do? We say we want the stake as humanity. And so what do we do? We claw and we dig. And we say, man, why can't I get there? I can see it. I can taste it. It's there for the taking until I figure out there's something around my my neck that is holding me back. And then I look back and there's God. And what do I do as humanity? I turn around and start biting at God. We did not think it worthwhile to understand who God is. To glorify Him as God. What that means is we turn around like that rabid dog and we say, Who are you to put a leash on me? I know what's best for me. I know what I want and I want to get it. So we start attacking God. And we start saying, You know what? I would rather you not be the one holding the leash. So I'll create someone who will let me. They may hold the leash, but they're going to let me get that stake. So what do we do? We fight against God. And what does God do? He says, You want it? Fine. Go get it. You know, what does the dog do? The dog forgets about us, the one holding the leash, and goes after what it was one day one. And that's what we've done. We have forgotten God, and we've pursued the thing that's on the floor. Little do we know, please hear me, little do we know that that leash is the greatest channel of grace and mercy and love that we could have ever had. One thing I learned, you know, you got to meet my mom and dad last week. And one thing I learned about my parents, I did not like when my father disciplined me. But the greatest thing that I love today 
is that he did. Why? Because that leash, if you will, of discipline was the greatest love and mercy and grace anyone could have ever showed me. Why? Because as a teenager, I was hell-bent on doing whatever I wanted. And my father took care of that. But God says, you know what? You want it so bad? And there were times my father did that as well. You don't want to follow the ways of the world. You know what we used to hear a lot of? Then go live somewhere else. You don't want to do it? You think my rules are tough? There's the, we, all the, there's the door. I'll pack for you. You know, that's what God did. You know what He said? You don't want to live under my rules? You don't want to glorify me as God? There's the door and I'll pack for you. I want you to understand, this is a settled, this, this term isn't just because it fits in my alliteration. It is a settled position that God has. This isn't something He wavers on saying, should I have let them go? Should I? Should I not? Oh, but what if they do this? He says, you know what? It is better that I let them go, that they learn from their sin. The next thing that we see this morning isn't just that it involves a settled position but we learn that it deepens when we cultivate sinful pleasures of the heart. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity. God lets go of the leash and we run to the evil desires of our heart. We run to them. Now understand this. The issue of sex in your life, if if this is an issue of struggle, don't think that it finds its beginning below the belt, if you know what I mean. It doesn't begin in the groin. It begins in the heart, the Bible says. If you think that a cold shower or some wishful thinking is going to take care of sexual immorality in your life, you are dead wrong. That's like trying to put out a massive fire with a garden hose. It isn't going to happen. It begins in the heart. The prophet Jeremiah said that the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Sounds like heart disease to me. Who can understand it. We watch the news and we don't understand why all this incredibly heinous sexual activity is happening. And we say, why would someone do that? Jeremiah says, because the heart is deceitfully sick. Who can understand it? James tells us that temptation uh, comes and he says that each of us are tempted when by our own evil desires... We are dragged away and enticed. You can never tell anybody, if you fall to sin, that the devil made me do it. What does it say, James? What are you telling us? Each one is tempted when by his own desires. All the devil does is points them out to us. He knows where we struggle. And he says, hey, take a second look at that. Hey, ponder your thoughts on that. But look at what happens. After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. I want to say something very clear this morning. Understand this. Please hear me. It is completely normal for every person, man, woman, and young person in this place, to have sexual desires. Please hear me. That's how God created us. It is normal. It is normal for us to be attracted 
to the opposite sex. That's how God created us. That's why Paul says later in our text next week that what happened was is the world just wasn't happy with sexual immorality, but it exchanged normal relations with unnormal relationships. The natural affections for the opposite sex to the unnatural affections. It literally means you'll learn next week it is against the law. It's against nature is what it's talking about there. Against nature. Understand, it's normal. It's normal because God created us to be that way. But that isn't the issue this morning. Remember, humanity has told God when we fall to sexual morality that even though God has created us, we say, you know what, God? I know what's better for me in this area. Even though you created me, I know that there's a better way for me to live, and it involves sexual immorality. So we take a legitimate feeling, a natural response, and we allow sin to wrap itself around it, and we change it into what we want it to be. Look at verse 25 for a moment. What does it say we do? We exchange God for a lie. I was talking with Ray this week as we were as he helps me work through some of the tough passages, and I said, Ray, I, I just don't understand it, and a lot of commentaries really don't help out in this issue, because if you look at what Paul is talking about, he talks about that they worship created things in verse 23. Look in your Bibles real quick. That they exchange the glory of God for created things, and instead of serving the Creator, we start serving animals and and people and reptiles and birds. And then he says, all right, now I'm going to deal with one verse on sexual immorality. And then I'm going to go back to this idolatry thing. Where it would have been better, in my opinion, had Paul said, and it's not up to me, but if it would have been, I would have said, Paul, what you need to do is, is take verse 25, make that verse 24, and make verse 24 verse 25, because in verse 25, 26, and 27, he deals with sexual immorality. So what is it? Why is it that Paul puts it the way he does? Because I believe he's trying to tell us something. One of the first and most subtle places that we will find idolatry is not bowing our knees to a graven image, but worshiping other people. One of the commentaries, Ray found me a a great uh, statement out of a commentary, and what it says is, is that immorality at the very base of what it is is idolatry because it is the worship of another's body for the sake of something that it will bring you. So that's what Paul's saying. He's saying world. He's saying Romans. He's saying village Bible church. Don't forget this. This is very much at the fabric of of the beginning of what it is. This is idolatry. You have taken sex and you've made it your God instead of me. It's the illicit worship of another. Now how strong is this desire He says that we have fallen in our sinful desires. This word epithumia, epithumia is the word desires there in the Greek. We saw that root form of that word when we talked about the wrath of God being the thumos of God. It is the thermal, the fire of God. Well, this is the fire within us. Epithumia means an inner drive or a passion for something. Epithumia exclusively is, I'm sorry, is almost exclusively used except for one time used to signify an out of control craving. 
That we are just, that's all we want. That's all we can think about. There are some here today who find themselves thinking hundreds, thousands of thoughts a day about this issue and say, why? Why do I burn with such a passion in this area? I don't want to live this way because of the epithumia within your heart. It's a drive. Now notice what happens. It leads to sexual impurity. This word impurity, I'm going to get gross for you for a moment, but stick with me because it's important. This word impurity is the word akartharsia. Akartharsia. Literally, it means moral impurity. Akartharsia was used in the medical world in Paul's day to speak about a wound that was oozing pus. Does that give you a good word picture of sexual impurity? Pus. It was used as describing uh, uh, moral decay, any kind of, I'm sorry, any kind of decaying matter. It was described to talk about people's symptoms and conditions who struggled with leprosy. An ancient commentary once said that what Paul is talking about is what he's saying is it would be more clean or more um, sanitary for a person to smother their bodies with feces than to involve themselves in what Paul is talking about. Paul is saying this is gross. This is sick. And yet what does our world do? It glamorizes unholy sex. It says, you know what? The church doesn't have a handle on it. We have the real way of making it possible. So what do we see? We see unbelievers writing the the sexual songs the love songs, the romantic songs. We see uh, daytime soap operas glamorizing this issue of uh, sexual immorality. And where's the church? We're silent. We don't say a word. Because Christians ought not talk that way. Christians, we, we should talk about other things. And Paul says this is gross. And it needs to be confronted. Finally, we see that this filth leads to a certain type of pursuit that leads to something, and that is that it results in shameful practices that dishonor the body. It results in shameful practices that dishonor the body. We look at sex our way, and we like how it is, so we put it on, if you will, and what happens? It results in the dishonoring of the body. The Bible makes it clear that when we fall to sexual sin, it will ruin our lives. But before we talk about that, let me set the record straight for a moment. Before I even get to the dishonoring of the body, for the brother or sister in this place this morning who's playing around with these things, who's thinking about certain things, and says, you know what, Tim? It's only in my mind. You know, Tim, it's only when I'm by myself. I don't don't involve anybody else in this. So it's not that big of a deal. The Bible, I love what the Bible says. The Bible says, can a man take hot coals and pour it into his lap and not get burned? You know what we're doing when we do that? We take, as a a barbecuing guy, I know this, we shovel up hot coals and we start throwing them into our lives and we say, well, I'm not going to get burned. You will get burned. For those who have fallen to sexual immorality, even within this place here, I am sure they would tell you without a shadow of a doubt, I thought it would end here, but it ended here. I thought I had it under control until something came my way that I never would have thought would have been possible. And all those stories that I read that I never thought would happen to me, it happened to me, and you know what? I couldn't say no. 
Don't play games with this. The Bible talks about in Proverbs chapter 7 that sexual morality is like a woman. I talked about this uh, probably a year and a half ago. In Proverbs, I believe it's chapter uh, 7, talks about how a young man goes out and he hangs around a prostitute's house. And before he knows it, she snatches him. And she takes him in and she speaks with cunning words. And he falls to sin. And the Bible says that he was like a cattle led to the slaughter. He didn't have a clue. It was there. The clutches of her hands were there before he could even turn around. It hits us so very fast. So what does it lead to? We don't get a handle on this. It's going to lead us to something. Old adage says, sin takes you farther than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, costs you more than you want to pay. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you cannot make a deal with the devil and ever come out on top. Don't think you can. I want you to think of two great men who dishonored themselves in the Bible. David and Samson. These guys are heavy hitters in the faith. These guys, man, they were the ones. These guys were rock solid. David, a man after God's own heart, writing many of the Psalms that we read in the Bible. This was a guy who was one of the greatest kings of Israel. And one day he's hanging out on his rooftop and you know the story. What does he do? He sees Bathsheba bathing. And that's not his wife. He should have turned. He should have said, you know what? I can't look on those things. He had written about those things. How does a young man keep his way pure? He had written that. He knew what he was supposed to do. But he says a second look. And he looks even more. And he says, you know what? i got some fire burning in me. Go get her for me. And I love one of the guards in the palace. He keeps saying, hey, uh, uh, king, by the way, uh, don't, this is Uriah's wife. And he says, nah, forget it, I don't want to hear it. And he says, don't you know this is the wife of Uriah the Hittite? I don't want to hear about it. And he sleeps with her. And you know what happens? Guilt. Murder. The death of a child. Family turmoil. A kingdom that becomes divided. A life where he is running for his life from his son because his son wants to kill him. In fact, his son does something to him that he would have never thought of. And I'll tell you, you think your sin is only going to stay within the confines of who you are? God says, you know what, David? Because you went after someone else's wife, your own son will sleep with your wives. And his son does that because of sexual sin. Samson, great man of the faith, who's built a lot like me. Strong. Had lots of hair, flowing hair. Just like me. There's the V shape, and I call myself the pear shape. And what happens to Samson? Samson's hanging around, and he starts involving himself, looking at the Philistine uh, villages. He finds a good-looking lady named Delilah. He can't keep his, his, uh, um, the temptation under wraps. He can't keep the fire down, so what does he do? Even his parents say, don't do this. Don't do this. Teenagers, uh, young people, listen to your parents. They're not always right, but listen to them. Take their advice. Samson's parents said, don't do this evil thing before the Lord. Man, you're a man who's set apart. You took the Nazarite vow. You are a man who is strong in the Lord. And what destroyed that? Sexual immorality. Because he fell for a Philistine woman named Delilah and she seduces him and he never sees it coming. The guy's as dumb as rocks because he's more worried about uh, the joy that he's going to get out of the bedroom that he never thinks it's going to cost him more than he knows. And God gives him chance after chance and 
He tries to put up a fight and says, well, you know, I'll give you a riddle. If you get the riddle, I'll tell you. And he goes on until finally he tells her. And what does she do? The pagan woman that she is, she had no desire to be in love with him. She goes and tells the Philistine army, come and get him. I figured out what it was. It was his hair. What happens to Samson? Samson finds himself imprisoned. When you play around with sexual temptation, you'll find yourself in one place, in a prison. And what happens to Samson? He ends his own life because he's chained to columns at the great building where all the Philistines are living. And he says, let me bring justice back to you, God, for what they have done. And with great strength, because he asked God for his strength back, God gives it to him. He knocks the pillars down, dies while killing more men, women, and Philistine people than he ever did when he was alive. There's a great place in that. And that is when you do fall to sexual immorality, there's still an opportunity for you to do something great. And that's what Samson did. It dishonors and degrades the person, the text tells us. It dishonors us. This is what brings on things like an unwanted pregnancy. This is the things that bring on broken relationships and health problems, sexually transmitted diseases, shame, and loss of the ability to serve Christ in many ways. What words for us to remember? Think about what this would cost us. If David and Samson were here today, they would have said, "When? Think about, I would have done anything in my life but do that. Some of you are here today and you are thinking about a very particular moment where you are saying, if I only would have known where that would have taken me, I would have run away as fast as possible to get away from that. Because the only thing that has come as a result of that one night stand or that illicit relationship has been problem after problem after problem. Why is it that it does that? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 18-20, Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. But when we sin sexually, we sin against our own body. Why is that so big? Because do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Listen to what he says. Therefore, honor God with your body. How do we do that? How do we honor God with our body? With a couple minutes that I have left, third point this morning, the application. The application is respond with biblical steps that will bring praise to God. There are four biblical applications this morning. And they're for each person here. The first one is to our young people and the singles in our midst. If you are single, remain celibate until you're married. Remain celibate until you're married. There are some great truths that are easy to preach and hard to live. This is one. Amanda and I are going to celebrate our 10th anniversary this end of this month. And I remember those difficult days. I remember as a high schooler, those days aren't so far beyond me that I've forgotten. I know what it means. I know how difficult it is to remain pure. And one thing, I was was dialoguing uh, with another man in our church, and i got to tell you, I praise God. I praise God that there wasn't the Internet. We had just gotten the Internet in the mid-90s, but it was so hard to get to, and it took you so long to get on, it wasn't worth trying to find anything anyway. 
And yet, my brothers and sisters, the young people in this place, you have to deal with instant things right before your eyes. I thank God I didn't have to deal with that. But you know what that means I should be doing? And all those who have gotten beyond those difficult years, we should be praying for the sexual purity of our young people. I mean, we should be on our knees. There is no sin that is great that brings greater harm to a young person than that of sexual immorality. So that's what we should be praying about in our small groups, in our Bible studies. Someone should say, let us not forget the young people in our midst who today are fighting with temptation that the devil wants to destroy them before their life even gets started. And that's what we should be praying for. But there's words of practical application as well. And I wish they were words that I, I had taken to heart far sooner than I did. Number one, young person, single in our midst, don't think sex is everything. Don't think sex is everything. You know, my youth pastor, John Avery, told me, he says, you know, I asked him some very pointed questions my senior year about sexual um, things and desires. And he was honest with me. He said, you know what? It is one of the greatest things that God has ever created, and it's worth waiting for. But you know what he said? It's not everything that God's given us. There is so much more. And if I know teenagers like I remember how I was, sex was everything in my mind. And not just the issue of lust, but the issue of just kind of coveting after that. Everybody says it's great. I want to get there. It's like the ice cream cone that everybody says is so wonderful. What do I, I want to try it. Why? Because everybody says it's wonderful. But it's not everything. Sex is not everything. It's part of what God has given us, but He's also given us a life in Jesus Christ. He's given us the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's given us the gift of friendship. If sex was the thing that held marriages together, I'm telling you, it wouldn't be the thing that kept them together. It isn't. It's love. Because like drinking, you know, I used to want to drink all the way up to the time I was 21 and I'd fight that temptation. And then it was amazing. The second I turned 21, what left? The desire to drink. And that's what we begin to do. We begin to build this house of cards when it comes to sexuality, that it's everything. It's a part in marriage, but it's not the only thing. Number two, do all that you can to flee from sexual temptation and gratification, whether alone or with someone else. Run away from that. Now, I know that there is a lot of different stances that people take on how far is too far, what can you do when you're dating, what can you do when you're engaged, what, you know, and, and I'm going to tell you something. I don't think that's the issue. Not that there isn't to be boundaries. Please hear me. There are boundaries, and God has created. But listen to what I've written down. The root of the issue is not where the line is drawn, but where we put ourselves into a place where something can become our master. You know, we say, well, I shouldn't go this far with a girl or a guy. The better question should be is I shouldn't go this far with a thought. Why? Because sex has a way of becoming your master. I don't hear a lot of people who are enslaved to lying. There are some. I don't hear a lot of people who are enslaved to uh, gossip. There are some. But what I hear more than anything in this world are people who are enslaved to sexual sin. Why? Because it has a way of bringing its clutches into us. 
So be very careful. Talk to godly people. Sit down. I, I, I got an email from a couple of our guys out at Moody uh, who, were, who were dialoguing with a group of their friends, and they were horrified to find out that there was across the board all kinds of lines that they thought, man, we should have stopped here and stopped here, but they were saying, no, it's all right here. And so they email me, and I'm the only one up at 1 in the morning, and they see I'm online, and one of them says, Tim, uh, when is it too far? And we had a very frank discussion as fast as I can type, which isn't very fast. And, and I'm telling them, there are parameters. There are barriers. And, you know, my wife you know, had learned early on, and I'm so thankful for her. She began to say, you know what, I, I want to treat any boyfriend that I have the way I want my husband to be treated I don't want to do anything to my my girlfriend that I would want done to the woman I'm going to spend the rest of my life with one thing I've learned men young men in this midst as I've counseled couples that deal with these kinds of issues it is usually a dating experience that has ruined a woman when it comes to sexual intimacy with their husband Something, a boyfriend or someone early on, a father or someone they know that has destroyed it. And if you want to have a wife that enjoys sexual intimacy and desires that as much as you do, then you live a life of purity when it comes to your dating life as well. The third thing I have for you is transfer the temptation of sex to Christ. Transfer the temptation of sex to Christ. You will never fix it on your own. But the Bible says take every thought captive to Christ Jesus. You find yourself looking at things. You find yourself doing things you ought not to be doing. Don't sit there and say, I'm going to try harder next time and that's where I'm going to find victory. You say, by the power of Almighty God, I give it to you because I can't get it done on my own. Transfer it to Jesus Christ. Next, bathe yourself in the Word of God. David says, how does a young man keep his way pure? By living according to the, the wonderful precepts of the Lord. Next, keep yourself busy with things that are wholesome and pure. You know, when I found myself in trouble in a whole bunch of other ways, it was usually late at night with a bunch of buddies. Why? Because we were bored. We were bored. My dad used to say, what is there to do at midnight? And I'd say, there's a whole lot of stuff. And he'd say, what? I'd say, I don't know. <laughs> David, why did David get in the problem that he did? Because he wasn't where he was supposed to be. If you read the text right before he sees Bathsheba, he's supposed to be out with the army. And it says that he's strolling the rooftop of his palace. Why? He's bored. He can't sleep. And so he falls to sin. Two more. Strive to look at all people, including the opposite sex, as God does. You see that girl at Walmart walking down the aisle? Instead of lusting after her, think of her as your sister in Christ that you're going to spend eternity with and that you're going to have to be judged for when we get to heaven. Secondly, look at that girl or that boy that's wearing that Abercrombie and Fitch stuff and instead of looking, someone said ooh, instead of looking at them lustfully, say, I wonder if that person needs to hear Jesus. You know, some say there's no crying in heaven. I say there will be crying in heaven. Not that the Scriptures tell us yes or no. It tells us at one point He'll wipe away every tear. That means there's going to be some crying going on if Jesus is going to wipe them. And I wonder if it will not be because we will hear the fiery screams of people in hell that we as Christians lusted after or used 
instead of taking that opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. That would be agony. More than I would want to bear. Finally, seek first the kingdom of God. Allow Him to add as He promises everything, including sex and marriage that may or may not come in your future. Let's move on. If you're married, celebrate sex with your spouse. Celebrate sex. I don't want to be flippant. I don't want to be funny. I wanted to be very careful. Uh, But married people have sex. Have lots of it. Enjoy it. Pursue it. Make it a, 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 a something that you're a part of. And, and don't just make an appointment to be a part of it. I know that's a lot of things with kids, and there's never a good time. But make it a part of your marriage. God said it is good. Be involved in it. Be careful you don't start getting into the habit that there's a headache or I'm not feeling good. Why? Because the Bible says you don't own your own body, your spouse does. Be careful of that. The Bible says you want to find sexual morality in your midst, start withholding sexual, uh, sexual uh, pleasure from your spouse. The Bible says there's only one time when you are not to uh, be together where there's a sexual fasting that goes on, but he says for a time. And literally in the Greek, it's not a very long time. Do it quickly. That's a wrong phrase. Wait, wait for a little bit and then get to it. Okay? That's what I was afraid of and I prayed for this morning. And it happened. The other thing in regards to that, I know I'm blowing the time here. Let me, let me finish up a couple things with it. I know that within marriage lives, there is a couple problems that happen. One, you've brought in an issue of sin, of sexual sin into your life, and it has hurt your spouse. For the one who has hurt your spouse, you seek forgiveness in whatever way you can, and you ask God to open doors that that relationship can be restored. You who have been hurt, you seek to find as quickly as possible a resolution to that pain. Because God says you are to two are to become one flesh. And if you hold on to bitterness and anger and resentment and don't get back to that place, you will never find the fulfillment that God had for you. So what do you do? If that's a problem in your marriage, seek out counsel. Seek out friends that you can open up and say, we're struggling with this. And let God mend two hearts back together. Because He can. Thirdly, this morning... If you struggle with sexual temptation, ask God for the strength to conquer it. There's a couple of ways that we can conquer sexual temptation that the Scripture reminds us of. Number one, make a commitment to be pure. Job 31.1, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. Set a line in the stand say, I'm not going to fall to that kind of stuff. I'm not going to be involved in that kind of stuff. I'm making a covenant that I will not break. Number two, Play out the results of your sin. You want to fall to sexual temptation? You want to look at something on the Internet? Next time you do that, I want you to understand this is what goes on through my mind. When something comes into my mind or something comes across my eyes, this is what I think of. I want, you to, be, I want to be very clear. What's going to happen with Amanda? What is the disgrace that is going to come upon my two boys? How will I ever be able to look you in the eye on Sunday morning knowing that I have fallen to sin? What would happen to this church? What would happen to the family around me that has a testimony for Jesus Christ? 
And then I say, all right, in light of losing my family, my wife, the respect of my two boys, losing my opportunity to serve God, losing the respect of the people in my church, destroying a church, because that's what happens when pastors screw up. It destroys a church. And thinking about all that, I sit there and I say, eh, I can pass on that. And that's what we should do. I'm not saying it's the perfect way or the only way. But remember Galatians 6, 7, 8. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The man who reaps to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. Next, look for a way of escape. 1 Corinthians 10.13 No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Joseph is being tempted by Potiphar's wife. And what does he do? He finds the nearest exit door and he takes off. It can be done. Uh, next on that list, 1 John 4.4 4, Remember that He is greater that is in you than he that is in the world. You have victory in this. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is greater than the one that is greater in you is the one is greater than the one that is in the world. Jesus Christ is greater than the devil. Any schemes that the devil has, any ploys or tricks that the devil has in regards to you falling to sexual sin can be disarmed by the power of God. Finally, if you have fallen into sexual immorality, maybe today maybe it was 10 years ago, confess your sin and receive forgiveness from God. I want to close with reading a statement and then we'll have our our closing song. This is what has been shared. Are you haunted by your sins in the eyes of God, in the eyes of your conscience, or in the eyes of others who have found it out? The sin may have occurred just a few moments ago, or it may be a distant but potent memory Perhaps today you don't actively participate in this sin anymore. You've come a long way, and you no longer feel the allure to the lifestyle you once avidly pursued. Or perhaps you just did it again. And the memory, whether freshly minted or ancient history, fills you with dismay. Perhaps there were immediate or long-term consequences of your sin far beyond the repercussions within the own guilty conscience that you have. It may be an abortion, a sexually transmitted disease, an inability to bear children, ongoing vulnerability to certain kinds of temptation. You've received a bad reputation. You've had ruined relationships, wasted time, failed responsibilities. Understand this. Nobody did this to you. You did it to yourself and you did it to others. You victimized yourself as well as those you betrayed. And now you feel like damaged goods. For you, because of your actions, sex is no longer a bright, iridescent, cheerful, generous matter of fact. It is not the flat-out good that God wanted us to enjoy with our spouse or to be saved should we ever marry. We find ourselves with guilty feelings in our singleness. We've brought them into our marriages. Perhaps we're afraid of relationships because we know the bitter experience that we can't be trusted. Perhaps it's hard to shake off the train of bleak associations that have been attached because of sexual feelings or acts in the past. But let us never forget, people of God, the author says, we often underestimate just how radically biblical faith relies on grace. Grace means that what makes things right, please hear me, 
comes to you from the outside.